Welcome to The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that's gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor and your host, Michael Pryor. Episode 8, Cendia the First, Queen of Magic. This episode, instead of starting with listing sources for the life and reign of Cendia the First, 206 to 210, I'm going to plunge straight in. I'll mention sources as we go, and in any case, I'll list them on my blog website, www.michaelpryor.com.au. A snapshot first up. Sendia was born in 186, the second youngest of five children. She came to the throne in 206 when her father died at the age of 61. She was just 20, Omir having married late. She reigned for only four years, dying in a tragic magical accident, more of which later. Sendia's short reign is marked by some important advances in magical theory, application and organisation, and she is rightly remembered as the Queen of Magic, formalising much of what had remained haphazard about magic and its heavenly origins, as well as inventing the system of categorisation of scales that is still used in modern Anarchist and throughout the world below the war in the heavens. First up, the succession. How did Sendia get to be Queen? Well, remarkably... All of Omir's five children actually liked each other and got on well, despite having the anarchist ambition gene. Very early on, Vafina, Calix, Presconsendia and Knox secretly vowed not to contend for the throne. And instead, when the time came, they'd draw lots. When the youngest Calix came of age, they held this casting and Sendia was chosen. Together, they put this to their father, united in supporting this second youngest of the siblings. Even more remarkably, this wasn't a ruse or a ploy on behalf of any of them, and the result was one of the smoothest transitions of the crown in the history of Anarchist. The other siblings went on to direct their ambitions in different areas, the military, diplomatic missions, municipal organisation and the arts. Since the succession was resolved when Sendia was only 15, she received extensive preparation for rule. Politics, philosophy, history and economics were drilled into her and at all times her duties and responsibilities as the dead god's heir were emphasised. She'd be responsible not just for the people of Anarchist but for the legacy of the Heavenfall with all its magic and enchantment. It makes you wonder why Anarchist offspring were, generally, so desperate to grab the crown. Oh, one last thing about King Omir's reign. His cylinder is selected for the ceremony of imparting by anarchists who are keen for military insights, both strategic and tactical, as well as intimate knowledge of fighting skills. But there's some nuance here. Plenty of anarchist monarchs have been bellicose military leaders, warmongers and bloody-minded, but that wasn't Omir. His cylinder is chosen by those who are after insights from someone who thought deeply about the role of force and warfare in the world. Sendia and Magic 
If you'd like a refresher on magic in the world below the war in the heavens, have a listen to episode five of this podcast, which is devoted to this subject. It's meaty, detailed, and sonically interesting. Uh, well worth a listen. Sendia and magic. Well, young Sendia showed the usual childhood interest in magic and was especially enamoured by the glitter of scales. But in her middle teens, a significant event occurred reigniting her interest and taking it to another level. Not long after her father, Omia, succeeded to the throne, someone who claimed to be Tekla Hamasi's great-granddaughter presented herself at court. If you remember episode four, and have a listen if you don't, Tekla Hamasi's was the magical advisor to Eucanta I, the first monarch of Anaquist, and her deep understanding of scales and their magic was vital in laying the foundations for Anarchist as the preeminent centre of magical applications and theory throughout the world below the war in the heavens. She was a mysterious person of unknown origins, which, when you think about it, is pretty much part of the CV of every magical figure. When Queen Yucantha died, Tekla Hamasis disappeared and her fate remained unknown. This new figure who appeared... This was called Dalcian Hamases. Uh, she appeared to be in her late 30s and claimed to have spent years travelling across the continent, exploring ruins, discovering minor heavenfalls, consulting the wise and the insightful, investigating archives and communing with the wilderness, and was now ready to follow in her ancestors' footsteps and advise the rulers of Anaquist in all matters magical. The trouble was, this uncanny stranger couldn't produce any references, and so instead of being handed a highly paid job as magical advisor to the crown, she ended up as a tutor to the younger royal siblings. And this is where she found an enthusiastic audience in the young Sendia. Sendia had already spent much of her free time in the hypogeum, watching the workers remove the scales from the body of the dead god, and also watching the adepts who were fashioning them into magical devices. According to the annals, she was just as entranced by the sheer beauty of the scales as by the magical effects that they could bring about. But she also displayed some magical talent, the practical sort, that today would be called fabrication. But she was steered away from this and directed back to the studies that would prepare her better for when she assumed the throne. But it wasn't long before Dalcian Hamases, the mysterious stranger, saw that Sendia's curiosity was matched by her intellect, and so she had a ready pupil on her hands, and she spent extra time with her, out of hours, so to speak, teaching her magic theory and applications. So when King Omir died and Sendia had had some years of being schooled in a multitude of approaches to magic, she suddenly had access to her dreams. Dalcian Hamases, at this time, she was nothing if not a synthesis of sorts, and she was able to bring together a variety of approaches to magic, which impressed the young Sendia. Uh, she'd gathered these approaches through her wanderings across the continent, only eschewing those that had no evidence at all. She wasn't totally beholden to the past either, being critical of some of the methodologies of the dialectical school. In fact, her revised Perenic taxonomy of magic is the one most often used today, for instance. 
not radically different from the original ancient version, it is more flexible and more accountable to actual perceived phenomena. After uh, Sendia's coronation, Dalcian Hamases was immediately appointed the royal magical advisor, officially. Uh, and this was actually Sendia's first official act, first regal act, and it raised quite a few eyebrows. Her priorities became even clearer when one of the first proclamations of the new reign welcomed any and all magical adepts from across the world below the war in the heavens uh, to anarchist. So theoreticians, fabricators, and those who might fall outside traditional categories were welcomed with open arms. In addition, Queen Sendia allocated funds to establish a library to house texts on the subject of magic and associated areas. And she also extended facilities in the hypogeum, adding more workshops and scale extraction facilities. This was only the beginning, for as Emmanuel Lemavon points out in The Foundations of Magic in the World Below the War in the Heavens, Queen Sendia didn't simply act as a patron and benefactor magical studies, she devoted herself to it in a very personal sense, honing and extending her fabrication skills in partnership with Dalcian Hemesis, who acted as the theoretician in that pairing. One object still exists from this collaboration, an exquisite ball made up of hundreds of tiny scales. It's small enough to sit in the palm of a hand and if it's rolled about, it emits a soft light that changes in a kaleidoscopic way, a dazzling display that hasn't dimmed in a millennium and a half. It resides in a special cabinet in the Anaquistian Keep and is only exhibited on special occasions. But when it does, you can see the hand of Queen Sendia herself in the making. partnership between Sendia and Dalcian Hamases produced something else of enduring worth, however, and that's the categorisation system for scales that's still in use today. Before Sendia, with the assistant of Dalcian Hamases, systematised the categories of scales, a bewildering number of approaches were used, particularly since the commerce in scales took off in a big way during the reign of Queen Kendall I. With the number of scales available, thanks to the body of the dead god, traders were selling and buying scales across the continent, and each of them had their own way of describing their merchandise. Ad hoc cabals and associations had tried to impose their own system on others, but these had always fallen apart with bickering, acrimony, and not seldom stabbings, with the result that trade was slow and cumbersome with little trust on behalf of any party in any transaction. I mean, how could two scales be compared? What was this scale worth compared to that one? And who was trying to swindle whom? This bottleneck was a serious impediment to the growth of the Anaquistian economy, so after consulting widely in the hypogeum and corresponding with scholars across the continent, Queen Sendia constructed a new, improved and pretty much compulsory classification system for scales. It wasn't so much a carrot-and-stick approach as the crown smiling benignly and regally upon any merchant trader and adept who adopted the schema. And adopt they did. 
for a fuller and more comprehensive explanation of scales and their categories, don't forget to go back and have a look at episode five in this podcast series, Magic in the World Below the War in the Heavens. It's hard to measure the shadowy influence of Dulcian Hamases in this schema and its implementation, but it's pretty clear that uh, she was important. Sendia's bent was to consider colour and luster as the most important and overriding aspects of scales. Such was her aesthetic approach to these heavenly objects. She's almost certainly responsible for the variety of colours in the system and the subtle differentiation between them. Emmanuel Emmervon maintains that the inclusion of such unusual colours as Wenge, Xanthic and Zafri suggests that Sendir had extraordinary eyesight. Colours of scales, after all, can appear to change depending on the light, the angle of the viewer, and even the time of day. But even so, Sendia's powers of discrimination must have been astonishing. The insistence on including the more mundane aspects of size, for example, is said to show the hand of the more practical Dalcian hemises. The remaining two aspects, puissance and quality, are the most controversial, needing a combination of magical awareness and commercial sensibility to determine. Adepts who weren't adept enough for higher theory or complex fabrication were soon attracted to the role of discrimination, using their talents to determine how powerful each scale was and, the final, rather subjective category, its quality. Like, what sort of state was it in? Was it, was it battle damage? Was it marred by its ejection from the heavens or by something ineffable that had happened in the war above? Plenty of wriggle room in the quality category and one where the reputation of the adept making the call was vital. These adepts soon started calling themselves graders to put themselves on a footing with theoreticians, fabricators and percipients, establishing themselves as legitimate parts of the magical industry. An esteemed, experienced and trusted grader had plenty of work and commanded substantial remuneration for their expertise. Time for another aside. Dalcian Hamases, Sendia's magical advisor and partner, surely is someone ripe for a comprehensive biography. Come on, historians, do the right thing. She arrives mysteriously does mysterious backroom stuff hand in hand with the Queen, has some sort of relationship with her, is in the vicinity when the Queen is killed and vanishes mystifyingly soon after, never to be heard of again. Ah, it's got bestseller written all over it. And if you historians aren't up to it, how about a racy historical novel? So much to work with, so many gaps to fill in. Historical novelist, I implore you. And if you don't listen to me, Listen to the siren song of a possible major award-winning series on a respected streaming service. Nevertheless, if the life of Dalcian Hamases isn't fascinating enough, then consider this. All accounts note how much Dalcian Hamases looked like her great-grandmother. An apparently striking resemblance, which is interesting enough, but what is even more fascinating, and even spooky, is that a remarkably similar-looking woman appears at a number of times in Anaquistian history, almost always managing to become an advisor to the throne on magical and other 
matters, either formally or informally. The most recent sighting was in the reign of Mormigan III, 1562 to 1571, when he was counselled by the divisive Acalia Fentel. She advised him to stockpile magenta scales according to omens she only shared with him. The lack of public explanation and the aloof bearing of this Acalia Fentel eventually caused great unrest in the larger banking houses to the extent that an attempt was made on Fentel's life. Three streets in Lowtown were burnt to the ground in this fiasco, but her body was never recovered. All accounts from the time describe her in remarkably similar terms to Dalcian Hamases and Tekla Hamases many centuries before. Stories have grown about this mysterious and somewhat romantic figure. Some say she's an agent of the gods themselves. Some say the demons. Others opt for her being a magician cursed by spell mismanagement and doomed to wander the world below the war in the heavens forever as a ghost who walks, someone who can never die. I'm not the only one who desperately hopes this isn't just a story of a strange family, obviously well-versed in magical matters, handing down wisdom through the centuries, and instead it's a case of the same person living for more than 1,500 years, vanishing periodically to do unknown things before coming back to Aniquis to play a part in weighty matters. Surely that's not too much to ask. Queen Sendia's interest in magic continued after the unveiling of her categorization system for scales, so much so that she came to neglect her regal duties. Dromka, in the Monarchs of Anarchus, records that in 208, her uncle Pantaleon, uh, mentioned in episode 7 of the podcast, had grown into his role as High Admiral and he'd created an impressive naval fleet and organisation, leaving his crown aspirations behind. And in this year of 208, he actually stepped in and demanded that Sendia address herself to a number of important diplomatic matters that she'd let slide. We have no other evidence for this family meeting, but the 7th century scholar Helen Terapies of Milt mentions in passing an account of one of the Arenthian Merchants Guilds, a document now lost, where relations between the Arenthian oligarchy and Aniquis were strained in the early years of the 3rd century, and perhaps adding some weight to this claim. Lowtown city records from this time are fragmentary, but enough exists to see that urban infrastructure development languished at this time, with little money allocated to road maintenance and waterworks. Sendia was falling down on the job. Part of the explanation could be the document recently discovered in the Anarchist Library of Souls, jammed between two volumes that had fallen behind shelves in the rarely visited alternative woodworking section of that vast edifice. It's a copy of a copy of a copy of a remarkable document bearing the name of Dalcian Hamases herself. Consisting of seven folio pages, the document has rows and rows of arcane and impenetrable symbols, the like of which have been seen nowhere else in the world below the war in the heavens. Once this discovery was made public, Scholars and academics everywhere declared it a code and threw themselves into deciphering it helter-skelter. No, 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 no. Helter-skelter. No, 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 no. 
with no luck at all. Supercomputers, shadowy intelligence agencies and quirky geniuses have had a crack at it with no success. With Professor Inga Nigma from the University of Tress declaring that it's a deliberate joke meant to waste the time of future academics who have far better things to do, like applying for grants that have been rightfully theirs, no matter how many times their applications have been rejected by either petty-minded and pusillanimous bureaucrats. Uh, that's Professor Inga Nigma there from the University of Tress, perhaps with a personal axe or two to grind. A minor consensus exists, however, that the document is an extract from Dalcian Hammersley's actual workbook, detailing magical experiments and methods and, possibly, Quincendia's involvement. The truth awaits us. The death of Queen Sendia. In the stronghold, to the north of the keep, the original fortress of Eucantharenequist, near where the Waterly Courtyard is in the modern castle, formerly existed a squat tower with very thick walls, converted from an armoury watchtower built in the last years of Queen Kendall's reign by her son, then who became King Omia. In the first year of her reign, Queen Sendia took it for her own use and renovated it, adding an open-air observatory to the top for studying the heavens. The four stories of the tower became her private studio laboratory for magical experimentation, and she spent a great deal of time there. Despite the intervention of her uncle Pantaleon and the unhappiness in the many advisory councils and assemblies that Queen Sendia had appointed, essentially to relieve her of day-to-day duties, she continued to devote herself to pursuing magic. Because of the subsequent catastrophe and the complete destruction of her tower, nothing concrete is known about exactly what she was pursuing when she died. Apart from one cryptic and disputed section of Zofro's pastoral reflections, the extremely long and extremely obtuse third century epic poem, which suggests now, now this is if the allegory is interpreted in the way it has been by the bulk of historians, it suggests in a typically elliptical way that Queen Sendia was experimenting with a demon scale. Now, demon scales are extraordinarily rare, and some authorities contend that they don't exist at all, while others say that the temple suppresses all knowledge of them while scouring the continent and locking them up in secret vaults. As godly items and remains fall from the heavens, surely the equivalent demonic stuff would too, given the war up there. True or not, stories abound of their malignant nature and the horror of the magic they can produce. Zofro suggests in his roundabout way that Dalcian Hamases brought the scale to Sendia because she had the best assemblage of magical equipment. And also, she had access to the best scales of the most exquisite puissance. In theory, at least according to UL Danderfield in Puissance and Power, a demon scale would need to be surrounded by powerful magic if experimenting with it were to be in any degree safe. The preparations, if that's what was going on, were inadequate. After midnight, one day in the third week of spring, Sendia's tower 
both collapses and explodes. Zofro, for a change, is almost without words to describe the event, only gesturing at it by saying, the maid was unmade in an instant of light and fire, Uh, which is remarkably straightforward for the normally verbose poet. Dozens of buildings in Lowtown were flattened by the stones of the tower that were hurled into the sky before plummeting into densely packed neighbourhoods. Deaths were many. The blackened and contorted body of Queen Sendia was eventually found underneath rubble, but the first courtiers who tried to remove it, they died shrieking when they touched the body. After much effort, and with some very long poles and ropes, it was rolled into a hastily made lead coffin and taken to the royal mausoleum, the, the one begun by her grandmother, Queen Kendall, and finished by her father, King Omir. The body of Dalcian Hamases was never found, nor was any trace of a demon scale. Queen Sendia's Legacy Sendia is remembered for founding the Library of Souls, the imposing institution that is the official archive for the monarchy to this day, as well as being the repository for soul cylinders. Sendia naturally didn't leave a cylinder due to the nature of her death. It would have been fascinating. She's also remembered for the new Queen Sendia wing of the hospital, added to the building begun by her grandmother, Queen Kendall. Again, because of her sudden death, Queen Sendia was the first monarch of Anarchist not to nominate a successor. No doubt she was planning to get around to it sometime, but with her reign and her life cut off as short as it was, she was only 24 when she died, she didn't get around to it, unfortunately. Fortunately, though, she only had one child, Sane, who was two years old when his mother died. No problems with succession then, but a two-year-old monarch means, wacko, it's regent time. Sane's dad, Thracius, was from the noble Ognat family, comfortable and wealthy aristocrats whose burgeoning fortune came from the copper mines they owned about a dozen leagues to the northeast of Anaquist, where they also had a large and impressive estate. Young Thracius wasn't as enchanted with the country life or the mining life as the rest of his family, and from his middle teens resided in the family's salubrious low-town house, and happily squired himself around gatherings, balls and dances, as a dashing young man of good pedigree and plenty of money. He and Sendia met at a midwinter celebration in 210, not long after Sendia's coronation, and they fell in love, so swooningly that all Anarchist was united in saying, Aww, and they were married within months, Thracius becoming prince consort, and apparently perfectly happy to be such. It was a golden time for the royal couple. The new queen was radiant, the prince consort handsome and devoted. After a post-wedding holiday in a mountain retreat in the northeast, they returned to week-long celebration, unrivaled in the history of Anarchist until then. Any kingdom, principality, republic, city-state or fiefdom that didn't send rich gifts were immediately held to be heartless, without a jot of romance, like the uncle at family gatherings who sits in the corner and scowls at youngsters, especially if they're dancing. Their child, Sane, was born in 212, but Sendia 
became more and more obsessed with magic and the couple grew apart, with Thracius taking responsibility for the baby he doted on while the Queen spent most of her time in her tower with Dalcian Hamases. Now, for this next bit, I'm heavily relying on Oscar Handgarden's The Sendian Regency, which is the only secondary source I could find on this period, published in 1992. According to Handgarden, when Sendia died, the jockeying for the position of regent was predictable, with the heads of all the major families in Antiquus proclaiming to anyone who'd listen that they were the only one for the job, obviously. Several prominent citizens disappeared, bands of loyal followers roamed the streets and became embroiled in street brawls, graffiti artists began slapping slanderous descriptions of the major players, and for a while, Anarchus was actually on the verge of anarchy. Then the unexpected happened. Thracius stood forth. At a great gathering of nobles and other leading citizens, an occasion that was overseen by a hand-picked company of marines under the command of his uncle-in-law, High Admiral Pantaleon, Thracius announced that a regency council would rule until his son was of age. He, Thracius, would head this council, while the other 12 members would, would actually rotate twice a year. Now, none of this was done without preparation. Hitherto thought feckless and impetuous, Thracius had visited a good number of leading families and had individually achieved their agreement, getting them to commit to his plan. With them on side, no one else wanted to be left out, and so the arrangement was acclaimed. Any misgivings that lingered about Thracius and his ambitions were dispelled when Sane reached adulthood in 232, and Thracius stood aside immediately, dissolving the Regency Council. He spent the rest of his life doing his best to restore the memory of Queen Sendia as a loving mother and companion, devoting much of his fortune to the construction of the new Queensendia wing of the hospital, a wing devoted to healing magic. Sendia the first reign was short but tumultuous. That seems to be a theme among the monarchs of Anarchus. A boring time on the throne, everything going swimmingly, no threats or disasters. Mm, yeah, not so much. Wearing the crown of this remarkable city-state seems to guarantee an interesting time, to say the least. Sendia's obsession with magic is sobering. She wasn't the first to be seduced by the glitter and enchantment of these heavenly scales, and she was far from the last, even among the Anarchist dynasty. Being the monarch, though, meant she had access of the sort that few people have, and in the end, it may have been too much for her. Sendia I, Queen of Magic. This has been The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell. Farewell.